You are listening to Space Midrash. The space age has arrived and our culture, our civilization is unprepared. The narrative collapse is in effect. It can lead established cultures to irrelevancy or we can lead each other into the future we want to become. I believe in an artful and ethical humanity thriving amongst the cosmos. But we will only become those people if we tell the story that inspires us to become those people. I'm joined here once again with Paul Levinson. It's great to have here Paul Levinson. He's uh, he's a professor, a media ecologist, a TV commentator, a sci-fi author, a sci-fi community leader, and commentator as well. And he's been a guest here on the show. So I'm I'm glad to see you again. Happy uh, middle of summer to you, Paul. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I don't know how it's been. You, you live in Texas, right? I mean, here, I mean, it's, it's been incredibly hot there. I know here in New York, it's been incredibly hot, but also torrential downpours every other day to the point where you, you know, can barely drive. And I was thinking maybe a robotic car, you know, apropos of robots through the ages is a good idea after all, because, you know, the, the robot presumably has no emotions, doesn't get upset when it sees a torrential downpour, just, you know, keeps going. I uh, Last night, I actually was in a lift leaving a concert, and we came to a stop sign and happened to be on the street right in between two self-driving cars. And one thing in particular was I could see a huge screen where I imagined the steering wheel should have been. I don't know, it was, very, it was different, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't so regular. I didn't feel unsafe. But I, I think about how the title of this book we're here to talk about, that you're a participant in, Robots Throughout the Ages. And I think about, uh, for me, some of my earliest impressions in terms of produced chronologically of robots is the Twilight Zone and episodes of the Twilight Zone. And people would say, at least in the 50s, the word, it was more of an enunciation of rubit, right? And so I'm, I'm curious for you as, as a, you know, a fan of science fiction over time and somebody who's participated in this volume, what are like some of the different nomenclature or, or words for robots that you know, have both been fun and also maybe prescient or uncomfortable um, in some of, these, some of the work out there? Well, there really are two main contenders as far as names are concerned, and these two are used all the time. And then there are a lot of other names that crop up once in a while you know, a name that crops up once in a while would be like a cybernetic being or something like that. But the two names that most people are already familiar with are indeed robot and android. And there's even a distinction that those two names provide. A robot is visually and explicitly a mechanical thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it almost looks like the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz without the human face. Whereas an android, to some extent, looks human. And then there's the question of, well, how human does it look? So Data, in all of the Star Treks, except where he almost eventually becomes human, even though, and in fact, played by Brent Spiner, a human being. So so obviously, he looks like a human being. But as an acting performance, Spiner deliberately and very effectively makes his android data not quite human. You know, talking in a more mechanical way, reacting in a more mechanical way. And it's a very profound difference for all kinds of reasons. For example, something that often comes up in robot stories and, in fact, comes up in my story, Robinson Calculator, in Robots Through the Ages, is... Is it possible for a human to fall in love, you know, with a robot? 
And any human being that falls in love with a mechanical robot, that person has a serious problem. But presumably, if there was an android that looked and moved and reacted in a much more human way than even Lieutenant Commander Data, it wouldn't be such a crazy thing for a human being to fall in love with that android. And, you know, someone like Isaac Asimov in in his robot stories, he started out by sort of implying that they look more mechanical. But then as time went on and he was writing, you know, sequels in the 1980s, he made them more human uh, looking to the point where there were human beings who were married to androids as well. I would say, by the way, what got the word robot so strongly uh, into our lexicon was the 1920s play, never know how to pronounce this guy's name. It, I say Carol Kapek. But, That's what I was going to say, and I was going to ask you. The, and that's, yeah, he's going to uh, be like, you're the scholar in residence here. Yeah, I'm usually wrong when it comes to these things. But his famous play is uh, R-U-R, Rossum's Universal Robots. And that's also a classic robot story. And in fact, there is a, an R-U-R story in uh, Robots Through the Ages. But in that R-U-R universe, and this becomes like a classic syndrome, this is like a fear that you even see expressed today when Fran Dressler, you know, the president of SAG, says there are, there are now robots everywhere. They're taking over the world. We have to do something. Well, that comes straight from R-U-R because we build robots. We make them as smart as possible. They resent being slaves and take out their resentments by wiping us out. And, you know, the Terminator movies are another example of that kind of uh, robot. Do you think thematically there tends to be a difference in the themes of stories that involve androids where they are more humanoid, either in um, their appearance or also, like you say, their motivations and experiences and interactions. Is there differences overall in the themes of stories that are about androids versus more robots that are less android-like or however they come across? Yeah, because uh, the, the human appearance provides all kinds of options in the plot For example, it provides the possibility of the android deliberately being passed off or passing itself off as a human being. You you couldn't do that like with the old fashioned robot and, uh, you know, made of metal. And, you know, you, you presumably no one knows exactly what it looks like. You couldn't have done that with the golem the robot from the Middle Ages uh, from Prague, in fact, the rabbi of Prague and a couple of other rabbis from back then basically make an artificial sentient being out of clay. So that's not going to look human. Whatever's going on there, there's no way that entity is going to be passed off as a human being or believed to be a human being. And that is an extremely important point in the plot. And it also, though, heightened something that I've been thinking about for a while. Back in the 1990s, I wrote a a little essay, and it was published in a couple of magazines called The Civil Rights of Robots. And what I said in that essay is, if we continue to improve the artificial intelligence of our robots to the point where people would agree that they're sentient beings, we then have the right to order them around to do what we want them to do. And, I, and again, I don't think people would get too upset or as upset if, if these entities look like mechanical things, but they would if the, per, if, if the android looked human. And by the way, we, we human beings have a bad record on that. If you think about the way we interact with our pets, our beloved dogs, for example, and whether or not they're sentient, I don't know, it's an interesting question, but we expect dogs to follow our orders. And, you know, yeah, they're cute and adorable and lovable, and we even laugh sometimes when they don't follow our orders, but if it was something really important that we wanted the dog to do, like, you know, we're walking around someplace and the dog is not on a leash, and we say to the dog, stay, you know, on the curb because you don't want the dog. And the dog didn't. We would be upset about that. I mean, for the dog's own good. 
So in terms of our interaction with other sentient beings that are human, we're very quick to expect them to follow our orders. I think we would get upset if something, and especially if it looked human and was sentient, didn't follow our orders, even if it was posing no harm, potential harm or threat to us. You mentioned Prague again just now, um, and at first you mentioned the story, what's it, uh, Rossum's Universal Robots. Um, And you also mentioned how in the volume, it's brought up a few times in there. There's a story that very much touches on it. I feel in your story, it comes up in conversation maybe at one point. But I'm very interested because that story is 100 years old now. It's the 1920s. And what I see is that it, it has such a huge impact on sci-fi writers, you know, maybe, maybe as a story, it's, you know, it might be a little bit more um, specific to that audience and um, less ingrained in the American audience kind of perception of robots, but it had a huge impact on sci-fi writers. And I'm, I'm just, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the legacy of, of that story in particular. Well, I think that story, perhaps more than any other story, maybe, you know, the Terminator movies, have exceeded that, uh, but they, they're certainly not as old. But both of those, the Terminator and R U R, are now the classic stories of we invent something to help us. You know, in the case of R U R, robots to help us manufacture things, and in the case of the Terminator, a weapon system. You know, that's even you know more incisive in many ways you know the weapons are then turned against us and you know it starts out okay and that's why i mentioned you know the way we treat dogs eventually these artificial beings get tired of being our slaves and as understandably they would and uh, they don't have usually much subtlety they take out their aggravation by killing their human creators their human masters and, um, you know, in R.U.R., unlike the Terminator, the victory is really uh, complete. It's a pretty grim story. The world is just taken over by robots. And I have to say, if you think about all the concerns that we've been hearing about AI, not just Fran Dressler, but a lot of AI scientists, Chat GPT was released, I don't know, about six months ago, a little longer ago, and uh, everything broke out. And obviously, you know, there are problems, you know, with ChatGPT, you know, and we maybe even talked a little bit about this in our last conversation, you know, what's the professor to do? How can the professor protect against a student using ChatGPT to write a paper? By the way, there's a very obvious answer to that. Just pass a law not banning ChatGPT, but requiring that anything produced by ChatGPT have an indelible label on that product that says, I'm the product, or this is the product of ChatGPT, then the professor problem goes away. But um, I've now heard, you know, AI scientists, and they're really vague about this. On the one hand, they say, well, you know, I'm not talking, we're not talking about a Terminator-like problem. We're just talking about AI in general, somehow leading to the undoing of human beings. And when they're asked how they're like a little vague. The other thing is a- AI, of course, as we know, is not the same as a robot or an android. AI is something that uh, exists in, for the most part, you know, digital devices that are clearly digital, that don't look anything like human beings, and do certain things in response to what their programming gives them. And uh, there have actually, by the way, been some remarkable, very recent developments that are positive in AI. For example, AI programs can now scan a brain and predict pretty well whether that brain is more likely than other brains to produce tumors later on. So that's very, very important. But what's happened is uh, it's all been mixed together. Robots rebelling against us, taking us over androids passing themselves off as human beings and ai is now thrown in there and you know in terms of this apocalyptic concern they're all there and one of the things i like about robots through the ages is 
it has a wide variety of stories. And, you know, some of them are grim. By the way, it's usually some of the newer ones that are more positive. Mm -hmm. Robinson Calculator. Uh, Martin uh, Shoemaker has a really good story in the volume in which there is a, a robot, an android, that basically is a protector of a human female teenager and has a very, I don't want to give too much away, but a very significant effect on her life. And it's a, it's, it's a good effect mm-hmm. on her life, which I, which I think is reasonable. I mean, and you know, the way that human beings already relate to automobiles, you know, everything that we use, I think provides a clue as to the dangers, but the positive things. So somebody has a car. They can jump in the car and drive 120 miles an hour and wind up behind a tree and um, or even getting into an accident with somebody else. That's the worst possible result. But for other people, a car could be, hey, you know, it's, it's so hot and humid here. I'm going to drive up to, I don't know, some place. Maybe I'll drive all the way up to Alaska where it's cooler at least. And, you know, the, the car can be a, an agent of positive change uh, from where you are now to where you want to be. And, and I think that's pretty much the, the same. But I do also want to throw in here, there isn't any story by Isaac Asimov in the, in the volume for a variety of reasons. But um, in talking about what robots can and can't do, you have to get into Asimov's laws of robotics. You know, first, a robot can never by action or inaction allow harm to befall a human. Secondly, a robot must, second law, a robot must follow every human order unless it conflicts with the first order. So you can't order a robot to hurt somebody else. And third, a robot, because they're expensive, must always act in its own self-defense, its own protection, except when that violates the first two orders. So the second, so a robot, if it was ordered to, you know, basically disconnect yourself, the robot would have to follow that human order. And uh, even more importantly, the, the robot would be expected to risk its own existence to save a human life. By the way, Asimov is such a brilliant writer, he writes stories when, even with those laws, robots seem to be doing bad things. I have so many, so many questions, so much stirs up from that. But I, I want to turn back to specifically to the volume, Robots Throughout the Ages, which, which is coming out very shortly here on the 25th of July. And it's a great volume. I, you gave me the privilege of being able to, I, it was in PDF form, I was about to say I thumbed through it, but more I uh, scrolled through it. And it is absolutely a decade-spanning anthology and collection. So I, t- tell us about just kind of the spread of stories there and um, how this collection came together. Well, first of all, you know, uh, the, the idea of artificially intelligent beings go back uh, to Homer. <laughs> you know, the, uh, so that's literally how, how far back that goes. And I'll also mention not in science fiction, but in reality, the uh, Alexandrian inventor Heron of ancient Alexandria. I don't know if any of them have survived, but he has been described as having produced beings that seem to be able to do human-like things, even though they're artificially constructed. But uh, Robots Through the Ages, uh, the the oldest story in the book, is by uh, Ambrose Bierce, and um, the story, by the way, is usually known as Moxon's Master, but it's given a slightly different name in the volume because I think the editors discovered that that's the original name that Ambrose Pierce gave it. But me, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I like uh, talking about things that I have grown up with and known about. And I remember reading Moxon's Master when I was a kid in the 1950s. And that, by the way, is a robot that winds up murdering a human being. Again, not to give too much away. That story goes back to 1899. And, you know, it, 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 that was really, the, really the, the dawn of modern science fiction. By 1899, you had a lot of novels already by Jules Verne. You have at least four or five novels. You know, The Time Machine was the first by H.G. Wells. And... Um, Ambrose Bierce 
wrote in a way that he was sort of half of a science fiction writer, half of a horror writer. And you certainly get that flavor in his uh, stories. And then, you, you know, the, the, if we think of, of going back to 1899, the time machine, the time machine picks up and uh, we wind up in the 1930s and the 1940s. And, you know, here you have people like Fritz Lieber, Jack Williamson. I mean, and I, I have to say these, for me, these people are like titans in science fiction. I would, and I, again, I may have told you this story last time, but I love the story so much, and it's relevant to this. When I was in junior high school, did I tell you the story? And I'll ask I don't think so. Oh, well, here, yeah, good, I'm glad. One day, I go into my homeroom class. This is a true story. I'm not even exaggerating the slice. And the, the uh, homeroom teacher calls me up and gives me a note. I look at it. It's a note from the junior high school librarian. And it basically says, Paul, would you please come down and see me during your free period or whatever? I say, okay. I go down, and the librarian, a Mrs. Dason, invites me into her office. She's sitting behind the desk with a very concerned look. And she says to me, like, Paul, you know, we're very concerned about you. <laughs> I said, well, what's the problem? And uh, she proceeds to hand me a list of all the books that I have taken out of the junior high school library. And... She said, do you see what the problem is? And I looked at the list and I realized what she was getting at, all the books that I had taken out were science fiction books, either novels or collection of stories. This is in the late 1950s. And, um, and, and, but I figured, oh, I'm not going to make this easy for her. I said, I think so, but maybe you can explain it. And then she offers this heartfelt analogy to me. She said, you know, if all you do is eat one thing in your diet, you're going to get ill. You're going to get physically ill. If all you do is read one thing, <laughs> you're going to get mentally ill. And I remember thinking to myself, well, it's too late for me. You know, I'm already there. And so she proceeds to say to me, so we're so happy you use the library so frequently, but we're not going to allow you to take out any other science fiction books. You have to branch out. There's Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. There's A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. There are so many great books and novels that you could read. There's Ernest Hemingway. And that, by the way, he was like a hip new writer. This is in the 1950s. So I said, okay. And she said, we're not going to let you use the library. I said, okay, I get it. I never went back to that library. What I did is I discovered my local New York public library branch on Alton Avenue, and I read every science fiction book in that, you know, library. And so the reason why I'm mentioning this is one of the reasons why I wasn't going to agree with her, I was reading Jack Williams's story. I was reading Fritz Lieber's story and, uh, you know, so many other stories. And, and so anyone who reads Robust Through the Ages, when they read those stories, written in the late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, early 1950s, they're reading stories that kids like me in the 1950s were, were gobbling up. There was a certain motif I actually was noticing in some of those earlier stories. I noticed it in from the speaker in The Night at Moxon's or uh, Moxon's Master. And I really loved it in Fritz Lieber's story in there, A Perfect Day for Sales. But there was something, it just stood out to me, which is, there would be this motif of, is this robot, has it sold me on, I want to deal with it, or I believe it's really, you know, and um, in Fritz Lieber's story, it's like a, it's a very commercial experience. It's a sales robot. Do I really believe it? Is it, it has a trick to know if, um, if you're male or female or what age you are. And that gets messed up a few times. And it, it reminds me of people trying to point out where ChatGPT has its flaws and can't logically think through things. So I don't know, that skepticism hit me as, as very funny. I, I didn't expect that being in a previous, be, being an older science fiction there. Um, and so I'm just curious your, your thoughts on, on that skepticism towards machines, because I realize that is always a, a burning impetus for a lot of this. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I realized a long time ago, and I think it's still the case, there are many intelligent people, so it's not a question of intelligence, it's more a question somehow of temperament, who 
can't get over when they're reading science fiction that it is science fiction, and there are just things that bother them. So because of that, they have trouble, you know, believing it. And that applies to all science fiction. You, you know, if you, if you think, let's forget about robots for a minute. Let's talk about a time travel story. I actually believe that time travel is impossible. That's one of the reasons why it's so exciting to write about. But I, I don't care when I'm reading a time travel story. And in fact, what I'm looking for is a story that respects the paradoxes that traveling through time trips off. But somebody who has a different temperament often can't get beyond, you know, what is this? We can't really travel through time. And, and so I think that, you know, the, the, what you're talking about, and again, this is different, very different experience when you're reading something versus watching something. Because when you're watching something, and again, just to use, you know, the obvious example, data in Star Trek, it's believable because you're seeing a human actor act in a stilted way in the same way that it was believable that Spock somehow was not completely human. He was half human and half Vulcan. And if the acting is effective enough, it gets you to suspend your disbelief. But when that's just described in writing, then you sort of have to give in and, um, and accept that, you know, what is there might not be real. But I'll also say this. I very rarely read a story or a novel or see a movie more than once. And by the way, this drives my family crazy. My wife is the kind of person, she'll see a movie five times and say, I get something different each time I see it. My son is also like that. You know, he and his wife, they go to movies three or four times. To me, you know, life is short. If I'm going to go to the movies, I'd like to see something I hadn't seen before. So honestly, I didn't read Fritz Lieber's story again recently. And in fact, there's only one body of science fiction that I read three times, and that's Isaac Asimov's original Foundation trilogy. And uh, yeah, I read it once when, you know, in the golden age of science fiction when I was 12, 13 years old. I read it again when I was a student in college because I took a course in science fiction. And I read it a third time when my son was about 12 years old, and I suggested he read it, and I wanted to be familiar with it. And I did get something more each time I read it. So it may well be, if I sat down and read one of those stories now, that I would agree that it's a little clunky and obvious. But I certainly didn't feel that way uh, in the 1950s when I read them. And also, when you begin to get into the 1970s and the 1980s, and there are there are stories in there, like, for example, Robert Silverberg, who's one of the co-editors of the book, has a great story, Good News from the Vatican, which is, is a brilliant story in many ways. And without giving away too much of that, uh, the, the, the Cardinals are considering whether to elect an android as the next pope. But I, you know, I, I know, having read that story years ago, that I would find it equally convincing now. I, let me also just mention, you know, as far as uh, robots on the screen, I don't know if you ever heard of, and again, maybe we talked about it a little bit last time, Captain Video and his video Rangers. Did we talk about? Okay. I don't so, think so. All right. So Captain Video, let me introduce you to that. And here's an example of something where, you know, they say like the problem with Star Trek, the original series, is that like when the ship is hit, you know, with some kind of, you know, attack and the shields are down, you can, you can practically see some people outside of the frame shaking, you know, the thing back and forth because it's so primitive. I didn't care about that. Well, Captain Video and his video rangers was on the short-lived Dumont network in the 1950s in the United States. And uh, that was so cheaply produced, it was ridiculous. But one of the main characters was Tobar, the robot, and that's a robot spelled backwards. Tobar looked like a robot, and, uh, and it was, you know, it, there were some wonderful robot stories. Uh, uh, they didn't mention Asimov in particular, but Tobar was programmed to do good things, and some of the best Tobar stories were where he had to decide, what am I going to do, save this person or that person? Or, and, you know, for the early 1950s, they were pretty sophisticated. 
but the production was ridiculous by our standards. I noticed it even then as a kid, a, a pretty little kid, but I didn't mind it at all. So again, I think more than anything else, it depends on your uh, willingness to suspend your disbelief. My late mother, by the way, uh, she just didn't get science fiction at all. And, and when I gave her my first uh, science fiction novel to read, she read it and said, all right, it's a good story, but when are you going to write something serious? So then I gave her the first uh, nonfiction book that I wrote. And um, her response to that was, all right, it's a pretty good book, but uh, when are you going to write something that an average person can understand? So I got all that encouragement from my mother over the years. But that first response, when are you going to write something serious? All that shows is, you know, my mother was a person who, who didn't want to suspend her disbelief for this. You know, she actually loved opera. She understood fiction. But science fiction was like a step too far for her. A similar motif I, I feel I saw in some of those stories, especially seeing them over time, is some stories tended to like really tie the, the robot and the emergence of the robot in the universe of the story to a company or a business putting it out and it being very sales centric or something like of that nature. Some of these stories, I can't think of one in particular, but sometimes it's, you know, it's like they're just some stand in for like a Google or some huge megacorp. And some stories are not, it's not even about, you know, it might be about tasks or work or something, but it's not really about commerce. I, I'm curious about, if you feel like any of that represents any feelings maybe the authors have, or if that ties into any other themes about automation and work and, you know, being duped into buying things that people have always worried about. No, that's an excellent question. And I do think there's a dichotomy there. And I think, you know, there are some writers who write about robots and androids or, you know, again, robots in the form of cars that are self-driving cars and their perspective on it, the, the excitement in the story is who is building that, what company is building it, what company is selling it, how is it selling it to the public, is the public being endangered by this, etc., etc. But then there's another approach that focuses, you know, sort of zooms in and focuses on the relationship between the artificial entity and the human being. And it depends uh, really on what, uh, you know, what you are interested in as an author and as a reader, what you like. David Walton wrote a novel. He doesn't have any stories, uh, any of his stories, uh, unfortunately, in um robust through the ages. He wrote a novel about self-driving automobiles, which apropos of your question, considers both sides of that uh, issue. What is the corporation that's putting this out? And also, what is the human interface with that? And so he, he handles both those questions. But usually people go one way or the other. And by the way, apropos of that question, once again, Elon Musk's name comes up because he and, you know, the Tesla and other work that he's done has done a fair amount of work in developing self-driving cars. And the, the public's response and the media's response to him reflect the dichotomy that we're talking about right now. Because there are some people, as soon as they hear about Elon Musk being involved in a project, that's pretty much all they're going to talk about. And, okay, Elon Musk is trying to make more money, and now they'll, they'll be able to throw in, he messed up Twitter, we're not going to let him mess up our lives with these self-driving cars. But then there are other people who are more interested. Well, you know, how many people die or are badly injured or injured at all in automobile crashes in which there's a human driver, and therefore isn't a self-driving car a way of reducing that? But on the other hand, what problems are there in self-driving cars? So, uh, and by the way, so I keep coming back to that because I think usually now when people talk about AI and, and robots and androids, you know, they're talking about Siri, Alexa, and obviously that's AI used for communication. But I think a far bigger deal are self-driving cars because they're out there in the world and 
Again, the difference between robots and androids on the one hand and AI as a program that controls something is that robots and androids are inherently out there in the world. Right. I agree with you on the self-driving cars because when we, I think of, you know, I think of the, uh, the Google home speaker I have or uh, like a Roomba, they're not going to ever be posed with an ethical question of, do I need to run this thing over or not? You know, somebody's going to die. Who, who am I choosing to die in this car crash? Is it my driver or the other driver? I only laugh because it's, it's true. That's a decision, you know, it's a decision that has to be made. And I'm, I'm curious about the invention of robots and all this technology is, is pushing for a future in which there's less work and people are more free to do something else instead. But what robot literature tends to always point out is that there's another side to that, whether it's, it's, whether it's really dark or it's just, you know, it's just, it's hidden. There's a shadow because we're only looking at what's illuminated. And I, I'm curious about that aspect, the, the kind of like, I don't know, like a, a digital futuristic Sabbath in which people don't have to work is this promise you have to go to. I know Asimov, um, I know like iRobot's I largely about being at that stage in the society and some of the, some of the issues and stuff that'll come up. And I know some of these other stories kind of touch on that. I'm curious your thoughts. Well, yeah, you know, the, the question of robots are good because they give people more time off I think is an incomplete rendition of that question. What I think robots and also AI do is they replace, and this has happened, for example, in AI that's used here in New York. We call it Easy Pass. You know, up until whenever, 20 years ago, you know, you're driving over a bridge or you're driving on a highway and there's a toll on it. And, and how is the toll paid? Some literally poor guy, because nobody else tragically, uh, have, but a poor person would get a job like that where you're staying there, you know, eight hours a day, however long it is, breathing in carbon monoxide, you know, collecting tolls. So th that job has been replaced now by AI. Again, not androids or robots, but, but basically an mm -hmm. artificially intelligent system. And I, I think that is, and I tend to be an optimist about technology, that I think is is the not only the most optimistic, but the most accurate metaphor for this question that you're asking, robots giving human beings more time. First of all, it's not more time to just sit around and laze around and do nothing, although, yeah, that can happen. In reality, it's going to be more time to do what people really want to do during that time. And, you know, I'll give you an example of that. And I discovered this, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And actually, right now, I'm teaching a course, a graduate course at Fordham University through Zoom. So you, one could argue that, that Zoom is, in a way, a primitive example, you know, the, the, the artificial creation of a classroom of artificial intelligence replacing in-person interactions and yeah, it's true. I mean, you and I are talking now through Zoom. We can see each other, you know, just like I can see my students. So it's it's real enough. But yeah, it's not something that involves literal physical presence. And for me as a professor, one of the reasons why I like Zoom, not to the point where I wanted to replace uh, in-person teaching, but I like teaching some classes by Zoom, is because how do I teach my classes in person? I live 23 minutes away from Fordham University where I teach. That's not too long, but 23 minutes when the traffic isn't bad. So let's, and it's always a little bad, you know, the Fordham University is in the Bronx. I'm traveling in from Westchester. So let's say most of the time I'm going to spend at least 30 minutes driving to Fordham mm -hmm. and also 30 minutes driving back. That's an hour out of my life. I would rather have that hour Again, you know, maybe to sleep a little later in the morning if it's an early class, but for the most part, not to just laze around and do nothing. That's more time for me to write, or maybe it's more time for me to go for a swim, you know, to hot summer yeah, day. be human. That's right. So that's why I think science fiction stories, I mean, the, the, that, and, and even not stories, just concerns that robots and androids to the extent that they replace us 
The worry is not that they're going to rise up someday and wipe us out, but that they're sort of going to cause us to atrophy because we're not doing anything. Those stories and those concerns express a certain antipathy to technology, which doesn't understand that although technology can be damaging, it also has been doing and can continue to do even more good for human beings. I'll give you an example. I just heard about an hour ago, and I thought about our conversation. doesn't have that much to do with robots, but it's an example of technology that uh, I, I can't remember. I just came in in the middle of this interview. Some scientist someplace in Asia has developed a paint, a white paint, and it's not the kind that you can buy in the store. It won't be available for a year. But listen to this. If 2% of the earth is covered with that white paint, that would significantly reduce global warming. Because what the paint does is it would reflect the sunlight right back out into space. The problem with most of the earth, because it's not you know that color white, is it absorbs the heat. So there's a classic example of, of why I'm optimistic about robots and androids. And while we're on the subject, I think that we human beings need all the intelligence and help that we can get. It's in short supply for a variety of reasons. And to the extent that, at the very least, robots and androids free us to think about more sophisticated things, but also might be adding their intelligence to help us solve problems, I think that's a good thing. Another thing I'm curious about is... And when we think of sci-fi and really enjoy like a good sci-fi story that might be 10 or 20 years old, or it might uh, just the way it's written leaves a lot to your own personal imagination to fill in. What does something look like? I think about how when 20 years ago, when like the Roomba was introduced, most of us thought that was the stupidest, most expensive piece of crap. Why would you ever get that? It's going to get caught on the corner anyway. And now if you, you know, it was recently Prime Day and Amazon had deals and there's a hundred hundred copycat companies. And that means, you know, so many people are using Roombas. I, I've, I've never purchased one myself. Um, but it's just that like the robots and the way that the technology comes in, maybe at first it seems ugly or um, obtuse or dumb or just not for me. And then over time, people change how they feel about it. And then, I don't know, even more technology changes. And so I, I'm wondering, as someone who's had more revolutions and has seen more more of those waves happen, how does that kind of affect both science fiction writers and just the kind of people's perceptions as they try to talk about technology and feel smart about it ourselves? Well, first, as far as science fiction writers uh, are concerned, and certainly for me, and one of the reasons why in Robinson Calculator, the artificial intelligence is so human-like is the more sophisticated technology gets, the better what technology creates can be. If you want it to seem human, you don't have to settle for just human proportions. You can actually make this entity, maybe even mix organic material, you know, with the, uh, you know, cybernetic brain or whatever the brain is made of. And so I, I think that as a science fiction writer, the evolution of technology opens up these vistas and, in effect, allows us to consider more advanced examples uh, of what might be around us all the time. And that, by the way, has always been a primary path of science fiction. So there's a, another brilliant science fiction writer and I'm beyond honored to be in this book. Philip K. Dick, one of his mm -hmm. stories is in this book. And for him, what is always the case, whether it's robot, android stories or something else, is the dilemma, what is human? And how do I compare it to this human? And who's more human, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, Philip K. Dick was someone who, you know, he, he did his writing in the 60s and the 70s, but he, his head was really in the future. In many ways, of all the authors in the book, his head, his mentality is far, you know, ahead of, you know, everyone else's in terms of being in the future. So in terms of what you're saying, you know, as far as science fiction is concerned, it, unless now in 2023, you want to deliberately be 
you know, retrospective and nostalgic. I don't know if you could write a, an effective story of an old-fashioned clunky robot like in R.U.R. Uh, and and it, could it be effective? And that's why I mentioned even Asimov. He was not clear what R. Daniel Oliver looked like in the novels that he wrote, but by, in the in the and stories that he wrote in the forties and the fifties. But by the eighties, when he went back to the robot stories, he made them much more human like. He was reflecting the evolution. By the way, I, I mentioned that there were no Asimov stories in the anthology, but there is a wonderful story by Connie Willis, who actually wrote a story. It was an anthology of stories, foundation stories, and she wrote a, a robot story in the foundation uh, universe. So, you know, I, I would recommend uh, Connie Willis's story as well, an, another great writer. It's as another I, great story, too, that references yeah. other great, you see references Asimov right away, and it's just... Yeah. Uh, I love that. There's something about that that I absolutely love when I'm reading. And there's a piece of that I want to change it to talk about actually about Robinson Calculator, because the the main character there is very interested and obsessed about um, the robots in the universe of that story, but also takes a very like is searching for information and is going to the library as part of as part of their results. So I I'm curious about about that and that obsession and dr- drive and that character. You know, from from you, the uh, the robot creator of here. Yeah, well, you know, th- this is indeed a payon to Asimov and his stories because, again, as I said, it's in the Foundation universe, and libraries are central to the Foundation stories. Obviously, you know, the library on Tranta, which has the answers to everything, but who can understand it? Who gets access to it? And when you mix robots into that, you naturally have to have them interested in these questions as well. And I thought that was one of the delightful things of, of the stories. By the way, while we're on the subject of other stories about Asimov, the stories in the Asimovian tradition, there's the trilogy of uh, foundation stories r- written by Gregory Benford, Greg Bear, and David Brin. They have some robots in their uh, stories as well. And I should say the late Greg Bear, he, he passed away uh, earlier this year and he was a great guy and um you know i had the pleasure i was president of the science fiction rise of america for a couple of years and he was a previous president and whenever i had a problem or an issue he would be one of the first people i would call he always had great advice but you know as far as robinson calculator is concerned you know that's yet another situation because i well I, i again i tell me if i told you the story that when i was writing the Silk Code, and my wife was reading the manuscript, and she left it on the kitchen table. I told you that story already. Well, I'll tell <laughs> it to you. All right, good. So the next morning, our daughter, Molly, who's now a uh, very successful head of a uh, of a, a, the CLC school. It's a uh, school for pre-kindergarten children. But uh, she, uh, she was just a teenager, and uh, she picked up the novel and read it, and but when I came down to the kitchen, she said, Daddy, I, re- I read your novel, The Silk Coat. I said, oh, my God. I mean, because there were a couple of scenes in there that I would rather my daughter not have read. Mm-hmm. And then she made things, she said two things, one of which made me very happy. The other one, I said, oh, my God. What made me very happy, she said, Daddy, it's the best novel I ever read. And that was great. I pleaded with Tor Books to put that as a blurb on the back of it, but I couldn't convince them. It would have been cool. <laughs> but then the other thing she said, and, and this is why I'm telling the story, she said, you know, Daddy, Bill D'Amato is just like you. And um, I remember thinking, hmm, so what exactly did I have Phil D'Amato do and say? But my daughter, I mean, she was probably, she wasn't even a teenager. She was maybe 12 years old then. But she was recognizing something, which I think is the case of a lot of authors. It's certainly the case of me. You write about what you know best, and who do you know better than yourself? And so the main character in Robinson Calculator, to give some way, is not Robinson Calculator. It's the guy who discovers Robinson Calculator. And, And as you know, he is desperate to find out more information about these calculators. He goes all over the place, including... 
I tell you, Professor likes sushi. He even goes to a, an old shoe repair store because he thinks maybe, right? And, and, and he goes to a science fiction convention. So Connie Willis's story, you know, also reflects that. And, and this searching for the answer, as I said before, Isaac Asimov is by far my favorite author. And although I don't really write that much like Asimov, I, I mean, I haven't written any galactic sagas. And his robot stories are very different than Robinson Calculator. I think, uh, though, a certain sensibility that Asimov had, which is the quest for knowledge, whether you are an artificial being or a human being, you want to find out more about yourself, you want to find out what's going on. I think that is something that is very profoundly a part of every intelligent human being. And it's reflected in Asimov's stories, and it's reflected in Robinson Calculator, and it's reflected in Connie Willis's story in Robots Through the Ages. So I, I'm really excited about this volume as it's coming out. Um, where can people get Robot Throughout the Ages? Well, they can get it in, in lots of places. If they go on, it's it's right now available for sale, in advance order. And if they raise the price, all you pay is what the price is now. So just go Robots Through the Ages and on Amazon. And by the way, it, let me just get this straight. It's available in Kindle, paperback hardcover, and I think two different audio versions. So there are five different versions of the book. By the way, let me mention as far as the audio version, an incredibly cool thing. I think I mentioned Spock earlier in our interview. Uh Um, Well, Leonard Leonard Nimoy did a reading of Avram Davidson's story, The Golem, from the 1950s, and that is in the audio version of Robots Through the Ages. And that, that's oh, a wow. real coup to get to get yeah that Nimoy reading, and um, that's a the, that's a great um, story. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I love it, and th- you know the uh, the people who have read the book, there are reviews of it. If you just search for it, you know it's got nothing but rave reviews so far, and I think really justified. You asked me earlier, by the way, how did I come to have my uh, Robinson calculator in this volume? My answer is in the best possible way for an author. I didn't have to submit it to them. I got an email one day from uh, Brian Thomas Schmidt, who co-edited the volume with Robert Silverberg, and said to me, hey, Robert Silverberg and I are putting together a volume, uh, Robinson, uh, and, and you know, we'd like to include your story, Robinson Calculator, in this volume. What do you think? I answered immediately. I think that's spectacular. Thank you so much. This was great. So, so I, let me know as soon as it's up. I'll send it all over the world as usual. And uh, I, awesome. I enjoyed the interview. Honestly. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Be well. It was great to talk. Right. Take care. Bye bye. This episode of Space Midrash was directed by me, Jacob Sager, right here on planet Earth and produced by Brand New Colors, LLC.